Amen. Good morning. Are you ready for Song of Solomon? Guys, we're closing the book today. Chill out. You're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. My favorite part of this whole um, series is when one dude brought his friend um, and, uh, to church. His friend is fairly unchurched, and uh, he didn't tell him what the sermon was about, and they strolled in actually through those back doors, and I was looking at him, and I was like, oh, cool. He, he brought somebody, and I'm like, oh, I've never seen that guy before, and then I started talking about the wedding night of Song of Solomon, right, and it's this guy's first time at Village Church, so priceless. So I've, I've enjoyed um, watching how uncomfortable some of this has made you. It's my pleasure and joy to bring you God's word. Uh, <laughs> When, from 19 years old to 23, I spent my summers with a couple in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, named Mick and Susan. And uh, Mick and Susan were retired. Uh, Mick and Susan decided in their retirement they would go to seminary. And what they would do is they would open a small counseling center. And so in this city of about 36,000 people at the time, uh, they did the majority of the premarital and marital counseling for the evangelical churches in their, in their small city. Um, I went down there to be a youth pastor, and so I spent a year, over a year of my life, living in their basement. And uh, the rule that we had was you can live with us, but if you're going to live in our home for free, uh, what you need to do is read every book on marriage, dating, sexuality, and relationships, right? So by the time 2003 came, if there was a book written before 2003, I have read it if it is on the subject of marriage, dating, relationships, engagement, or sexuality. And so I found myself at 23 years old living with this couple, and they took me under their wing, and they had already worked with so many young couples, and they had this consistent experience of frustration frustration with couples who are ill-equipped to process love and romance and dating and affection and energy and emotions and passion and conflict. And so they just had this burden, and they saw in me a 19-year-old, energetic, passionate, overcompensating, insecure kid who needed to be trained. So they forced me, and I joyfully took the call to read all of this literature. So by the time I got married, I, I want you to just hear me. I was smart. I could have told you about the main premise of every five love language book for kids and for teens and for this and for that. I could have told you about every book on sexuality and marriage and given you their thesis and, their, and an overview of them. I could have sat down with any couple and said, here are six ways to have better communication in your relationship, right? And my head was filled with tons of information. I had a big problem, though. It wasn't in my heart. I thought, truly, I believed in my core that when I married my wife, I was going to be a killer husband. I was going to be awesome. I was going to tenderly and lovingly take care of this woman's soul with skill and expertise because doggone it, I read every single book on marriage that existed, right? And then I got married. And I was a complete and total imbecile, completely ill-equipped to handle the precious and beautiful thing that is a woman's heart in the context of marriage. I had no idea what I was doing. Super duper smart, but I had incredible, incredible heart issues. Here was the hard reality. My heart always trumped my knowledge. My heart always trumped my knowledge. And so uh, I get married. And I'm thinking when I get married, when I was in premarital counseling, I'm like, here's my, here's my one-liner. Yeah, I got this. And now, on the other side of failure, of my heart being laid bare, which I know every married couple in this room, your marriage has exposed your heart and your soul. This is where, if you're married, you can give me an amen on that one, amen, right? Yeah, we, a little weak sauce, okay, you got some room to grow here, that's fine, okay? But my heart always trumped my, or my mind always, or my heart always trumped my knowledge. I got it, I mean. So now I sit down with young couples, and uh, they don't say it, but I can see it in their eyes. Yeah, I got this. And we warn them, and our advice to some degree seems like foolishness, and you know when you're married for a while, you can start to see the patterns that are inevitably gonna happen. You can watch a couple in premarital and say, um, I can pretty much guarantee you that your first five fights are gonna be about these things because been there, done that, and your heart is poured out on the table, and then of course it's like, yeah, I got this. And as a married couple, what do you wanna do? You wanna shake them, punch them, kick them, and then say, no, you don't got it. Are you listening? Yeah, I got this. No, you don't. Nobody knows how to be married well. 
until you get married, right? How do you do this thing? You've never done it before. And so I, I often have wanted to have conversations with 23-year-old Michael. What I want to do is go back in time and say, Michael, you're arrogant, you're pompous, your heart is broken, you're insecure, you have no idea what you're doing, humble yourselves before the hand of the Lord because you need help. You need help. I got this. That's what I would have said to myself. Self, you look older, you're gray. Oh, you're a lot bolder than I thought you would be. <laughs> Self, I got this. And then I would punch myself. <laughs> but then again, 23-year-old could definitely beat up 36-year-old Michael, let's be straight. <laughs> But I know some of you feel the exact same way, and so we get to the end of the book of Saul, Song of Solomon. We are gonna end this book today. It's gonna be over, so all your anxiety about what's he gonna say, can I even bring my friends, should I not show up this week, with all those other questions that I hear rumbling amongst people, um, you can put them all away because it's gonna end this week. And, uh, but, but here's what happens. At the end of this book, uh, there's some of this just final advice for lovers. It's this final advice for those of you who are married, those of you who want to be married. And if you could just kind of sum up some of the major big themes of this book, we're going we're to land here. And it's really just beautiful. You, you might be single and you're like, why do I need this advice? I'm going to give you just two simple reasons. Number one, if you're ever married, it's pure gold. What you find in this last chapter, it is just pure gold. It is beautiful. And you, one day, if you stand before a husband or a wife and God gives you that opportunity to be married, you need to make sure you're accumulating as much knowledge in your head and then begging God to let it seep deep down into your heart so that when you get married, you don't have to do what so many of us in this room have done, which is massively mishandle the heart of our spouse. You might be single, and you might be resolved to never getting married. You might be widowed, you might be divorced, and you might be thinking, I don't need this. I'm gonna say this over and over and over again. What the young generation of teens, 20s, and 30s need right now is people, men and women who are older, who are equipped to engage and speak with the next generation. If you don't want wisdom on this issue and if you don't want to hear the vernacular of the next generation, hear me, this is the biggest, greatest, single, most influential issue that has caused almost every single person I know who is young and walked away from the church to walk away because they saw the church's views of sexuality, marriage, and gender as functionally irrelevant. They, they kept hearing us say, no, 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 no. And you know who did it? We did. You know whose fault it is? It's our fault. And so what we need to do is something drastically different, and we need to be able to look at the next generation, and instead of compelling them with don't, 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 we need to show them a more beautiful picture of what could be and magnify the reality of the chaos around them of if you follow the world's lies and the culture's lies, here's what marriage looks like. And in our homes, as Christian married people, our homes should be bright, shining lights of affection and romance and attraction and monogamy and faithfulness that brightly shines forth God's kind of love that he has for his people. Now, I'm not saying I'm there. I'm not saying you're there. But I'm saying we cannot give hope, up, up, up hope. So many of you, I, 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 you have not wanted to hear this series because you have given up hope. Because you hear this, and you hear this couple, and you're like, that's not realistic. Do you know who I'm married to? And I just want to look at you and say, you can't give up. Because what is at stake are generations after you. What is at stake is the gospel being loudly and beautifully proclaimed in your home and in your sphere of influence. You can't give up. And if you've been divorced and you have made massive, massive mistakes, it is never too late to apologize to those who have been watching you. It is never too late to repent. It is never too late to build up a reservoir of wisdom that you can, with sincerity, hand off to the next generation. Millennials are not coming to church by and large, and I'm gonna tell you why. Fundamentally, because they don't want what we offer them. Fundamentally. Now, I'm not saying everybody in 100%. Let me give you just a stat that I'm gonna make up, 85%. The majority of millennials are not going to church anymore, and we have not passed on to them a sexual ethic, we have not passed on to them a biblical ethic, we have not passed on to them something that is more compelling than the lies and the evil that culture hands them on a silver platter. I am 
passionate. I've never been more passionate about dealing with these issues collectively and together because so help me God, we, have made, we may have lost the majority of 20s, but if we can preserve our elementary students and our young teenagers, so help me God, if we can do something different and we can model something different, even just village church, let us do it. Let us do it. Some people have said, Michael, why are we dealing with this? Why are we going through this study? Why are we doing this? I don't feel like I need to be there. You're, you are literally, if you will avoid this issue, you are forsaking any influence that you're gonna have with the next generation and your grandchildren. I don't mean to be mean or to be coarse or to threaten you. I'm just telling you this. If you don't get this, if you don't understand the fundamental principles of casting a more beautiful vision of the future for someone's sexuality, you will fail to compel the next generation to Jesus Christ. Because in this culture, in this culture, their erotic sexual ethic is winning and we have to show them something better. Okay, first sermon over. Let's get into the text. We're in the book of Song of Solomon. Open up chapter eight. I'm sorry, can you tell us it's like boiling up inside of me? Um, Chapter eight. So Song of Solomon, if you're new with us, this is a love story. It's a story of King Solomon. Ironically, the second greatest womanizer on the planet ended up having a 1,000, um, we'll say wives, uh, technically 700 wives who were queens and 300 concubines, women that he could just have sex with whenever he wanted. But before that, there was Solomon, the faithful, wise, monogamous lover. Before all that craziness, Solomon um, penned this beautiful song. In the opening of the book, it's called The Song of Songs because of all of the songs that he wrote, this was considered to be his greatest, most compelling, most beautiful. I can't wait to get to heaven because I want to hear the music and the melody and I want to be able to understand its beauty and its poetry. We'll just have to wait till then to really get the full depth of it. But this book is about Solomon's first love with his first wife, with the first woman who captured his heart. And this story follows their relationship from dating betrothal to their wedding day to their wedding night. We saw um, chapters five, six, and seven were all about this huge conflict they had revolving around the issue of sexuality. And then finally we get to chapter eight and the book is gonna close and we're gonna see this couple now. They are married for we don't know how long but they have a more mature marriage. Um, they are a little bit older. They might be 40s and 50s. They might be 30s, we don't know. But here's what we do know. They have a uh, voice with the next generation who is called the daughters of, say it with me, Jerusalem. You've been paying attention, yeah. So point number one, the first piece of advice that I think if we could just summarize so much from this book that we could leave with you would be this. So help me God, foster marital affection. Foster marital affection. We could go through a thousand examples of what this looks like, what it doesn't look like. I do believe intuitively the majority of you know but let's look at verse one, and actually verses one through three, and the conflict that they had sexually. And so here's what she says. She looks at him and she says something kind of curious. She says, oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. Okay, I've never looked at my wife and said, I wish you were my sister, <laughs> right? Like that's straight up weird. And so again, whenever something doesn't totally make sense, likely there is some kind of cultural gap that we have to fill. And so the text does give us an idea of what's going on here. It goes on and says, if I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. So in this culture, um, PDAs, public displays of affection, no, 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 you don't, you don't do that, okay? Um, the only people who were allowed to touch women publicly was a dad to his daughter and a brother to his sister. Brothers and sisters, these kids, it's like when I, when I put my brother or my, my son and my daughter in a room and they just wrestle and they play and then of course she always ends up crying because he played too rough, you know that whole game, right? Uh, culturally, a brother and a sister and a dad and a daughter, that was the only time a woman was gonna be touched publicly. And here, here's what we find in this girl. She has so much appreciation, affection, love, admiration, respect for her husband Solomon that when they're out in public, she's like, I just, 
I, I, I honestly, like, I just want to hold your hand. I just want to touch you. I want to put my arm around you. I just want to be able to kiss you. I, I wish that there was no shame because um, even though culturally there is some, some shame around this PDA, if you will, like biblically when a husband and a wife express just love and affection to each other, it is a good, beautiful thing. She says, I would lead you after the PDAs. <laughs> I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. And I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate. And pomegranate, whenever it comes up in this book, it's an erotic image. And she says, not only do I want to just have the opportunity to touch you and to show my affection to you, but I'm telling you this, like, honestly, like, I, I just want to take you home and I want to be with you. I want you to have me. I want us to be together. And what we find really beautifully in this book is a simple principle, a couple sexuality. It's always private, but it's never a secret. It's always private, but it's never a secret. And this is one of the things I think is so profound about the little kids who watch us. They pick up from a very young age on our affection or our lack of affection. They pick up very clearly our nonverbals and our verbals. They pick up very quickly whether or not dad protects and encourages and builds up mom's soul or whether or not he criticizes her and tears her down. They pick up so intuitively mom's respect and responsiveness to dad to the point that by three or four years old, they start imitating what we're doing, right moms and dads? They so internalize it by that age, they're already repeating patterns of affection or lack thereof verbally and non-verbally that we model for them. And so in verse four, um, Solomon's bride gathers the daughters of Jerusalem around her. So at this point, the daughters of Jerusalem have acted as, as a choral group. They come in at just the right time. They always kind of seem to be hovering around Solomon and his bride. But here's what we've seen. We've seen this verse in chapter four. We've heard it. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And we've heard this verse twice before, right? The first time, they seem to be dating. And right at the beginning of the book, she's expressing her attraction to him. And the daughters of Jerusalem are wondering, so how far did you go? And so she stops them and she says, listen, I want to just, I want to tell you guys something. There is a deep and strong attraction in me toward this man, but we're not married yet. And I want to plead with you. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how strong it is. If you give him your sexuality, your body too soon, you're never going to get the affection and close relationship that you really, really want. And then again, they're engaged, and it's right before their wedding. And the daughters of Jerusalem, they're gathered around, and the bride gathers them, and everybody's watching her because she's going to be the queen. This woman has a voice. She's influential. So she gathers the daughters of Jerusalem around, and she says, ladies, I adjure you. I am pleading with you. Listen to me. Do not give a man your sexuality outside of the context of marriage, because if you do, you will not be playing by God's rules, but you'll never actually get what your soul wants. For a third time, this comes up, and the reason it comes up three times is because this is one of the main points of the book. I adjure you, daughters, listen, now she's married, and she's older, and she's like many of us, and she's looking at these young women who want to get married with all of these aspirations and this crazy culture, and she looks at them, and she's like, ladies, you've heard me say this over and over and over again. It's probably, truly, um, in terms of a timeline, a different group of daughters of Jerusalem, the earlier daughters, probably got married and got husbands, and now she's got this new group of young women and young virgins, and she says, ladies, ladies, you got to hear me for a moment. I adjure you. The strength of these words cannot be understated. I, I want to plead with you that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. But in this context, here's what she's trying to show them. In my life, I want you to watch my marriage because my love was awakened within God's context. And this is good. Do you ladies want what I have? Because if you do, you cannot awaken your sexuality and give it to another man too soon. And then in verse five, the daughters of Jerusalem chime in and they say, who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? This verse is here for two reasons. The first, it's very simple. Um, in this book, the affection that Solomon and his bride have 
is visible for everyone. Though their sexual relationship is done in secret, it is never hidden the amount of attraction and love and affection that they have for one another. And I want you to hear me that somehow in this book, that the daughters of Jerusalem, these young virgins with aspirations to get married, these young women in this culture who are going to be tempted like every woman in this culture is to give their body too soon, um, these young women um, are compelled not by rules, but by a vision of what could be. You see that? And your affection for each other is one of the most beautiful, clear ways you can show them what it could be. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love until it desires. We've talked about this. This love is not sexual love, which is the Hebrew word dod. This love is ahava, deep soul connecting love. She looks at the daughters of Jerusalem and she says, I know what your soul wants and it's not sex. Your soul wants to be loved and cherished in a lifelong relationship with somebody that you are deeply, deeply connected with. Notice she doesn't say this to the guys because the guys at this age are like, we just want sex, but not the girls, right? But the girl, she's like, I know what your soul wants. And this is, this is the picture she's giving. It's like she's saying, look at my marriage. Do you want this? Because if this is what you want, let me show you how to do it. You have to protect your sexuality. Because if you don't, you'll never actually get what you want. Powerful. And the way Solomon and his bride show it is through affection. He's leaning on her. The way they speak to her. And the daughters of Jerusalem, they're watching like a hawk. What we learned as a youth pastor here with high school students, we had, um, when I was the youth pastor here, there would be 60, 70, 80, sometimes 100 kids a night. Most of them were not Christians, which has been proven out by the way they've lived their life. Most of them did not grow up in village church. They just came to youth ministry. And here's what we found. Youth leaders who were older, had a functional marriage, were like magnets to these dysfunctional kids. They longed to see healthy marriages. Young married, old married, we would have people in their 40s and 50s say, oh, you know, I'm too old to be a youth leader, and I'd look at them and say, not with this group, we got a bunch of jacked up kids, and every time they see a functional marriage, it's like something in their heart says, yes. And when they see a husband and a wife with any level of affection, it's like their heart just bursts and they say, yes. Some of you grew up and you had that, you are so lucky and you're about 3% of America's population. You are so rare. If you had a mom and dad who loved each other, loved Jesus, did not chew each other's head off in front of you and live in a cold war, you might be less than 1% of all the children who grew up in America. That's crazy. And so we think about what do we hand off to this next generation? We hand off an affectionate love relationship between a husband and a wife that brings God so much glory. And some of you, you were like, this feels impossible. This is the hard advice. You can't control what your spouse does. You can control what you do. You can get on your knees and you can beg and you can beg and you can beg and you can plead to Jesus Christ because he's ultimately the one that changes hearts. But again, our job in these moments is to paint the picture that the Bible paints for us, to paint this beautiful image. And some of you, you're not there, but I think you know with the right amount of help and the right amount of inter intervention, you really could be. I truly believe that st what stands be between most couples and health is asking someone for help. Truly. Most couples say, I got it. And as you live in your cold war, everybody, especially your kids and your grandkids, they know you don't got it. Point number two, respect loves power. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Verse five, 
Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? So the first reason this is here is to show forth their marital affection that is on display. Here's the second simple reason it's here. The daughters of Jerusalem are like a choral group, and they're transitioning the scene. You kind of have to think about Song of Solomon sort of like a play, um, and, and the daughters of Jerusalem show up to transition scenes to draw the audience's attention from one, one scene to another scene. So now our attention is going to be drawn from what is happening to this couple. Now, there are somehow coming up from the wilderness, they're probably in a chariot, she's leaning on him, and then he begins to speak. The scene begins, and he says, under the apple tree, I awakened you. The word awake, every time it is used in this, refers to their sexual relationship. Do not awaken love. And uh, on their uh, honeymoon night, um, she says, I have become awake. This idea of awake and asleep has to do with their sexuality. And so he says, under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Now you're reading this, and I've read this, and I'm like, what does this mean? There are these verses that come up, and you're like, I'm not sure specifically what they mean. I mean, there's some options, and commentators have surmised a million things, the apple trees, Jesus Christ, and all these other weird things. But um, there are two, I would say, plausible options maybe, but the apple tree symbolizes um, their love and their romance that was awakened. That's, that's one possibility. It's a, a symbol or a metaphor. The other interpretation is that the apple tree is some kind of real place. And what he's doing with her is he's reminiscing. And he's saying, um, you remember, remember where we spent that night? You remember the first time we fell in love? Do you remember? M- maybe. It's plausible. Um, maybe this was the place of their wedding and their wedding night where they made love. Maybe there was some kind of tent set up under this. Who knows? But here's what we do know. When he says this to her, she has a visceral response. She utters one of the most memorable, beautiful, emotional portions of scripture anywhere. She responds, and here's what she says. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. A seal signified something of great value and of ownership. And she says to him, I want to be the only woman you ever love. Now, can you understand being married to King Solomon why this might be provoked, (laughs) right? She knows his heart. She also knows the temptation that stands before him every single day, inheriting his father's harem. Maybe even at this point, he's already started to accumulate queens and concubines. We don't totally know everything that's going on yet. We have this hope, I think, as I read this book, that it's just them, and this is before his heart strayed. Please, God, let that be the case. Set me as a seal upon your heart. Set me as a seal upon your arm. I don't want to just be the only woman you love. I want publicly every woman who sees you to know that I am yours. I am the only one. Uh, This is our functional wedding ring. This is a reminder every time someone sees that my heart, my body, my love, my money is completely 100% devoted to one woman and one woman only. And no woman may come up to me, may threaten me, may talk to me, may come on to me because of this visible symbol. And she looks at him and she says, I, I want there to be a seal on your arm. I want everybody to know that I am your only love and desire and affection. I want every woman to stay away from you because you are proclaiming loudly, I am a one woman man. And then she says, for love is as strong as death. What kind of love do you think this is? Friendship love, sexual love, or deep soul connection love? It's ahava, soul connection love. She says, ahava, this soul connecting, marital, familial love is deeper than almost any other love on this planet. It is as strong as death. Once it has you, there is no loosening from its grip. Once you are dead, you are dead in their worldview. 
And once love, ahava, in the context of marriage solidified through uh, the, the covenant of sex, through having this relationship, once your marriage is solidified through this experience and affection and ahava grows and you have life together, there is nothing, nothing like this kind of, uh, this kind of connection. Nothing. It is as strong as death. And then, of course, I love this. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, a man cheated on, right? You want to see rage. You mess with another person's spouse. And then here's what it says. The very flame of Yahweh that God has put this fire of jealousy himself into the heart of every married couple because this is the kind of jealousy that he experiences when any person gives their heart and soul to another. And so every time you've lived with that little bit of jealousy in your soul, you have to remember this. The origins of that kind of jealousy come from God himself as a visual, experiential, emotional reminder of how protective he is when we stray to give our heart to another. He loves us with a fierce, protective love. This is why adultery devastates the picture of the gospel. Not only does it devastate it for generations to come, but it devastates it in your heart and the heart of your spouse. And God has wired it. There's nothing, there is nothing in this universe that creates more energy and anger and passion with detriment than adultery. She says, jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's flashes, are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. Many waters cannot quench Ahava, and neither can floods drown it. Here's what she's saying. Nothing can stop my love for you. Nothing. The worst tragedies, the hardest moments of life, the deepest wounds, the deepest sorrows, all of the trauma that can come onto your life, nothing will quench our love. Which is just a beautiful picture because, because of sin in this culture. What happens when tragedy besets a family? Couples turn on each other. And yet she says, when, when tragedy besets us, when all of life crumbles around us, when the floods come in, nothing will quench this. This is deep. It's deeper than our emotions. This is deeper than just a loose commitment as a friend. It's even deeper than sexuality. There is nothing like this. And if you violate this, flashes of fires from the Lord. And she says, nothing, nothing will quench this. Isn't that powerful? We can never underestimate the power of marital love. There has to be a healthy respect, which is why pornography and adultery threaten this. You want to watch jealousy rise up? These are fundamental threats to our marriage, and they're fundamental threats to the picture of the gospel that we're displaying. And then finally, in verse 7, she says this, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Let me just translate what she's saying. You can pay for sex, but you can't buy me love. You can pay for dode, but I'm telling you, there is nothing more valuable and no more precious than this ahava. You could give me a billion dollars and I would still never walk away from my wife. I would be utterly despised. I might have all the money in the world, but I would not have that which my soul longs for so badly. I think the reason most couples go into apathy when they are bickering and fighting and they have years or decades of just, say, subtle, quiet animosity to each other is because every man and every woman, despite what you admit, you have a longing deeper than words can explain to be loved and to love another man or woman. And when you feel like that hope and that dream is gone, most people have two options. Give up or get angry. And many of you fight and you get angry and you get angry and inevitably you give up. And I want to look at you and say, maybe there's another option. Go before Jesus, repent and get help. 
because we have to so respect the power of the institution of marriage and of marital love that if we just walk away from this in apathy, we will not be honoring what God has wired into the very human condition. This is one of the most precious, powerful forces on earth. It is created by God that way on purpose because it shows forth his love. And people who get divorced and they're like, I'm fine, it's no big deal. You are hardwired to be broken to shreds in the process of a divorce. And can God heal that? Give me a yes. Yes, but I'm telling you, divorce is one of the most difficult things and it is the lie of the evil one because in divorce, one person looks at another and says, I know you for everything you are and I don't want you. And the lie that gets told to our soul is that that is what God is like. And it's not because God knows you for every weakness, every strength, he knows you for every failure. He knows every motive. He knows everything about you that you don't even know about you and your family doesn't know about you. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, here's what he says to you. I love you unconditionally, 100%, despite what stupid people do. Despite what people do in their worst moments and their worst decisions, um, despite what they do with this institution that I have created to represent my heart for you, I want you to hear me. I love you perfectly despite your failures and your flaws. And some of you, you may think, wow, he's just harboring you know, people who have been divorced. I'm sitting in a room with 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 divorced people. I totally understand that. And at the same time, as we look at our past decisions, we have to be able to look at our past decisions through the mirror of God's word and allow the word of God to speak to them truthfully and say what they say. And at the same time, we have to be able to walk into the future and believe, and believe that you are 100% forgiven in Jesus Christ and God can redeem, he can redeem what has been done to you. And he can redeem what you have done. And if you've been through this, you know you know the pain I'm talking about and you need to allow me in this moment to speak to those who are on the precipice of making this decision and plead with them and say, do not do this because here's what it means. Here's what it means. And you should be able to rise up and say, don't do what I have done. And some of you have been wounded and violated and you understand this pain unlike anyone else. And the word of God to you is very simply, you are my bride. Though men or women do ridiculous things to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are safe, you are secure, you are loved, you are forgiven, and there is hope. Satan wants to walk into these moments of divorce and pain and heartache and tell you, you are unredeemable, this will never be fixed, this is unforgivable, and I think he just loves to take these moments and abuse God's people. May it never be. May we continually look at our brothers and sisters who have struggled massively and say, Jesus can heal and redeem anyone and anything. Number three, protect the next generation. This is an interesting text here because there's an implicit question. The question is, when are you ready to be married? And you'll see where this question comes up. In uh, verse two, I want to highlight one thing here. It says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of who? My mother. She who used to teach me. What's interesting is that the context of this is about love and sex and dating and attraction and romance. And this is a word to mothers with young daughters and fathers to young kids. That your privilege, your opportunity is to teach your children about these things. What's ironic to me, I'm just gonna call it out. We give our kids over to 100 sermons from culture and TV and media and school and public education, and yet we ourselves will not speak to them on this, and when it comes up in church, we don't let them go. Crazy to me. I just don't even have a category for it, okay? Um, and yet the biblical model is simply this. Dads, you teach your boys about sex. Moms, you teach your daughters about sex. You teach them about attraction. You teach them about romance. You teach them as young as it is appropriate. And before you actually teach them about sex, you teach them about gender. You teach them about attraction. You teach them about romance. All the things that lead up to this. You teach them about men and women and you train them by the time they're very young. We have to do this. It's not an option. So in premarital, um, here's what happens with almost, almost every single couple we marry. The last session, I meet with the guy, Bree meets the girl, and we have to walk through every detail of biology with them. We have to walk through emotions, biology, relationships, technique, everything, because no one except for culture 
by and large, has spoken to their kids about it. And so I sit, and here's what I tell them. The first thing is, I know this is going to be weird. Awkward is awesome. Let's just jump into this. Let's do this. It's going to be great. And uh, historically, it would be ideal if your mom or dad had this conversation. But culturally, that has not been an expectation. I mean, rarely will a dad say, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I will not do it. Most of the time, there have been cultural stories and expectations of what it means to be a mom and a dad, and we weren't taught otherwise. And so I actually don't have any animosity or frustration to moms and dads who haven't done this. I just think this has been the cultural narrative of what a mom and dad does. We just don't do it. And I want to enter into this next generation and say, we can't not, because we're giving them over to a thousand sermons. And so by the time Brianne and I get young married people, they have been told every single lie you can possibly imagine. And I have to spend two hours dismantling every lie they have been told so I can tell them the truth about what it really means to handle a woman's heart. And so we see here, and then verse four, she says to the daughters of Jerusalem, I'm gonna adjure you. And then by the time we get to verse eight, we have a twist in the story. You may not have seen this coming if you've been paying attention. If I were to ask you, who are the bad guys in this story? If you're paying close attention, you'll say her brothers. Because at the beginning, when she is young, she says, my brothers were angry with me and they made me work in the garden. Now, I haven't told you this till now because as you read through the book, the author wants you to believe up until this point that the brothers were the bad guys. And you know what's interesting? They're the good guys. That's, what, that's what's really funny. And I want you to read along with me in, cha- in chapter eight, verse eight. And here's what they say. The brothers chime in and they say, we have a little sister and she has no breasts, which means she's before puberty. She's not able to be married yet. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Before she even enters adolescence, these brothers chime in and they're saying, help us. We don't know where the dad is. Apparently in this narrative, she does not have a father who is either alive, uh, involved, engaged, or around. And so the brothers take the mantle of responsibility for her and her mother takes the mantle of responsibility to train her, but the the brothers have a unique masculine authoritarian role over this girl in her life. And And they say, help us. Like, what do we do for her when she's spoken for? And I want you to notice their intentionality. Before she even hits adolescence, they are preparing for her marriage. Notice that they have a vision for her future. They have a vision for the kind of man she's gonna be with and the kind of character she's gonna have. And I want you to finally notice their protectiveness. In verse nine, we see that there's two kinds of of daughters. You have a wall and you have a door. And they say, if, when she's ready to be married, if she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she's a door, we will enclose her boards with cedar. It's all poetry, but let me tell you what what they're saying. If she's a wall, which means she's not going to be sexually loose, she's gonna protect her sexuality, then we are gonna honor her. And we are going to praise her, we are going to encourage her, we're gonna build her up, and we're gonna set her up for success. But if she is a door, if she is open, if she is promiscuous, then we will do everything within our power to protect her. Do you see these brothers' protectiveness over her? Because one of the things that they understand is that most young people are not equipped to deal with their sexuality and the depth of their emotions, and they need protection. And she responds in verse 10 and says, I was a wall. And it's interesting, you might not totally catch this, but she says, and my breasts were like towers, meaning this, that even after I became sexually developed and I went through adolescence, I want you to know this, and she's telling the daughters of Jerusalem this, by the way, and she's saying, I was pure. I was a wall. I was not a door. Um, And even after I was uh, ready and available, even after all this stuff, even despite all the lies of culture, I controlled my my body. Here's what she says. I was a wall, my breasts were like towers, and this word is so great, T-H-E-N, then. Then. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. This is is a, a... poetic device. You know what Solomon means? It comes from the root shalom. She said, look, I was developed, I was ready, I wanted to be married. My brothers protected me. I played by their rules. I did it right. Then, as I was being the woman God made me to be, I found peace. 
I found Shalom, I found Solomon. And then you're wondering, how did you guys meet? What happened? In verse 11, it tells us, so the daughters of Jerusalem, they're like, whoa, where did you guys connect? And she says, Solomon had a vineyard at Beth, uh, Baal Hamon. He let out, or he rented, the vineyard to keepers. Who are the keepers? Who are the keepers of her vineyard? Her brothers. So Solomon had a vineyard, and he rented it out to my brothers, and each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. This was the cost of the rent. So the way they met is that her brothers were, were using Solomon's field. They were giving Solomon a thousand pieces of silver, and then they were keeping all of the rest of, 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 of the money. Isn't that interesting? Like if you're, now we know. They're like, how did you guys meet? What happened? Let me tell you about how we met. My brothers made me work in the field because they did not want me to have no character. They wanted me to learn how to be a godly woman who can provide for her family along with her husband and do hard work and have lots of awesome character. And, and so... And she says, but it was, it was when I was a wall. Then, that's when I met Solomon. In verse 12, she looks at Solomon and she says, my vineyard, my very own, and what is her vineyard? Who's the keeper of her vineyard? Her brothers and her vineyard is her sexuality. My vineyard, my very own is before me. It's mine, I protected it. And then she says, you, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit 200. Let me translate for you. Solomon, I have protected this and I am fruitful and you are going to be honored by how I have handled my life. And not only that, but the keepers, her brothers, will experience much honor because the girl under their care did it right. And God and her brothers and her man bore much fruit and were blessed by her. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I wondered the whole time, you know, I'm like reading this book, I'm like, where did they meet? Where did they meet? What happened? How'd you get together? And then she says in verse 13, oh, oh you, or he says, oh you who dwell in the gardens, who's dwelling in the gardens, the vineyard, the bride, with companions listening for your voice, she's handled herself in such a way that her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, they want to hear her wisdom because of how she's handled her life. She says, let, he says, let me hear your voice. And here's how, it, here's how it ends. Make haste, my beloved, my doted one. <laughs> That's what it literally means. And be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spice, which is her sexuality. I love how this book ends. It ends with a man, a husband, smitten with love, affection, and desire for his bride, and a bride who is smitten with love and desire and affection for her husband. He leads and protects her. She responds and respects him. And this is what she wants to show the daughters of Jerusalem. This is what she wants to show the next generation. There are two dominant analogies in scripture that God uses to describe his love for us. Number one is a father to a child. The second is a groom to his bride. And as we get to this closing of this book, I think what we just find simply here is that God is declaring through the institution of marriage his love for us. And he is declaring through every individual marriage what that love looks like. And so we are the bride of Christ who have been protected, who have been purely loved and taken care of. And, and this book comes as, as a plea to every couple to not give up. It comes as a plea to those who have made really difficult mistakes. Do not lose hope. Do not let Satan win and speak lies over your soul and your past. This, this is a, a plea for me, to you. The millennial generation, by and large, has been forsaken statistically, and they are the fruit of our negligence. We have to own that. But the next generation, it is not too late, because the world's getting crazier, and I believe, to the core of my being, if we can empower grandparents and great-grandparents and moms and dads to do it differently, as the world gets insane, we can raise up bright, 
shining lights who will change the world. Statistically, after someone's 18, it's, it's statistically improbable that they're gonna come to faith in Jesus. People do, right? But the, the highest probability of people being protected and coming to faith in Jesus is before they're 18 years old. And we have tons of little kids before, who are younger than that. If you put our high school kids together and you put our elementary kids together, there are over 200 kids a week between youth group and, student, and, uh, and our village kids that if everyone was there in that week, that's how many young souls we have to steward, not including all the little souls who are not connected to village church but just come to our Awana program. That's a lot of little souls. Could you imagine two to 300 little souls who all go to high school and they are bright shining lights for Jesus Christ? Could you imagine an impact that that group could have? We have an incredible, beautiful privilege in front of us to be the husbands and wives that God's called us to be, to not allow the sins of our past to condemn our future and let Satan have those victories and to pass off a compelling vision for what God wants to do with this next generation's bodies, love, romance, and sexuality. So with that, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite you to come back next week because Pastor Craig, Pastor Tim, and I, we're gonna do a Q&A. You can ask all questions you want, love, sex, dating, romance, attraction, anything. Um, I have not seen any of the questions, although I am told some are doozies and they have already come in in droves, and so I cannot wait to hear the kind of questions you guys are, are gonna ask. And uh, I just wanna officially say we're gonna punt to Craig all of the uh, really difficult ones. It's gonna be great. All right, let's pray together. Father. Man, you're so good to us, and I'm blown away how you have wired into our very soul, into our body, into our emotions, your heart for us, God, that you have given us even this deep desire to be married, which is weird. We see it in every culture, throughout every generation, this propensity to find one person and to attach ourselves to them. God, that's from you. Or do we see that no one can make us more murderous than a jealous and cheating spouse. We see that that is from you. Those are flashes of fire that's residue from the image of God in us. Lord, we see that there is this longing inside of us to have ahava with another person, whether you're male or female. It is, there's just this desire that drives us. God, it is all from you. And on this side of things, God, we stand before you as broken We stand before you as addicts. We stand before you as those who have divorced and been divorced, who have failed, who have yelled, who have cheated, who have screamed, who have called our loved ones names, who have modeled for the next generation on so many occasions things that we wish we could take back. And here's what we need from you. We need encouragement. We need healing. We need redemption, all covered in grace. I want to thank you that in Jesus you've given that to us. And Jesus, no matter how broken we are, no matter how ridiculous we have been, no matter how much we have sinned or been sinned against, we can bring this to the foot of the cross and you heal. Lord, even though sometimes we have to live real time with the ramifications of our decisions, God, in our soul, you heal us. And God, we have the profound opportunity to begin to even make some of those decisions different. And so God, may Village Church be more and more filled with marriages that are being healed, that are being redeemed, with singles, divorced, widowed, or never married, who are submitting their sexuality under the authority of your word and yet honoring its goodness the entire time. And Lord, that we would raise up another generation who would have a compelling vision of a beautiful future that you offer them. And so God, we ask all this in your name because we can't do this. This is above and beyond anything that we have capacity to do. And so we come before you, we beg you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.